I think we'll try a video first just to sort of whet your appetites. See what um, points you can pick out as Ron Block gives this testimony. I was born to two unbelieving parents and my mom had had a lot of trouble in her life, Was had a lot of, a lot of stuff going on in her childhood that was really bad. And uh, so um, she had a couple of marriages, married my dad, and uh, everything was great until my mom got saved. And it kind of uh, ended up in my parents divorcing when I was about five or six, and which caused a lot of emotional turmoil in me. And uh, my mom, um, kept bringing me to church and right around six that age I, got, I went forward and accepted Christ and I still have the Bible she presented me with and I, I read that Bible from the time I could read until I mean till I was in my teens and uh, but my concept of God back then was sort of the resident cosmic policeman you know the sort of bad tempered um, irritable but distant but loved me but was not pleased with the way I acted and so that's what I grew up with. I grew up under that sort of legalistic concept of who God was, which is completely false to his true nature. And, and uh, so at about the age of um, 11 or 12, I got really into music. I heard bluegrass music uh, on television. I, lived, we grew, I grew up in California. I heard bluegrass music and, and then wanted a banjo and a guitar. And I began playing banjo and guitar and so it gave me a sense of validation because my childhood had given me a sense of low self-worth and, and, and sort of insecurity and nightmares and all kinds of stuff. This gave me a sense of, oh, I, I am valuable for something. And so while I had Christianity going on one track, on this parallel track, my real, sort of, my real sense of identity was coming from music. And I was being fed by that. Um, and of course, as you will see, the only problem with that is is anything in our identity that is centered in the world is a fluctuating source. It goes up and down and up and down. And so in the mid-90s, I went through a, a very uh, dark and deep uh, psychological crash. And so what happened uh, through that crash, I remembered an, an Annabelle Gilham book that my wife had had up at her parents' place. And I was thumbing through it one day. It was called A Woman's Strength. And I thumbed through it, you know, idly, and I saw these identity verses. And this was several years before the crash. And, and I read, you know, I'm a king, I'm a priest, I'm holy, I'm accepted in the beloved. Oh, aren't those nice things? Isn't that great? But you really don't grasp those things until you really need them. And, and when I really needed them in that deep, dark place, that's where I went to. I, I remember those verses and I began to search out the scripture and find out, a, that, find out what God says about me and find out um, how he defines reality and he, how he defines me. And that's really what restructured my self-concept. And I had people, as I came from this one side of, of the crash, pre-crash, I was one kind of person. I was very introverted. I was never... I was never uh, comfortable unless I had an instrument. At a party, if I was playing, I was comfortable. If I didn't, I was uncomfortable, didn't really want to talk to people. After this crash and restructuring of my self-concept, I became 
not an extrovert, but very talkative and gregarious and totally willing to share my story. And um, anyway, that restructuring um, ended up completely changing, changing my life. Because, because the only way to get through life is to define reality as God defines it. And that's all faith is, is to say, this is what God says reality is. And then you look around at the circumstance that looks like it's completely not true what God says. And you say, I don't care what the circumstance is. God says this is true. And that's where you step out in faith and you begin acting. Did you get what he said at the end? This is how God defines reality. And perhaps the most difficult thing for us as believers is to get to that point ahead of one of those troughs in life. Because we all get to the troughs, this world will take you to troughs, to various ones. But our identity, our security is rooted in God's word. The one thing that you will see from front to back of the Bible is the consistency of the story of how God redeems his people. Of how much he values us. We're going we're gonna to look at that further on. And yet, running alongside that is story after story how people mess up. Can I give you a clue on how to make this life work? Don't mess up. End of sermon. That, that's it. There's, there's no secret to it. And yet we all think we know better, don't we? How about if you just take one thing away today... You take away the fact that actually God's version of reality is the truth. The truth. And if we just took that away, that's why I chose that that testimony. I know it would bless Kay. Do you know I used to get fed up with hearing this guy playing in the house? If you're musically talented and you can understand the notes, yeah, he's got a bit of talent. Uh, you know what I mean? But I mean, what, what a fantastic testimony. Defining reality God's way. We're going to look at what happens when we don't define reality God's way. Because that's the passage we're up to in Samuel again. If you remember last week, we closed with this statement that Ichabod had arrived. The glory had departed from Israel. They had lost their ark. Can we put the picture of the ark up just to remind and show people who weren't here. This is the Ark of the Covenant, or an artist's impression of the Ark. A box coated with gold plate, two cherubim up here, very important, and that Ark became like a talisman to the nation of Israel. They believed that actually God was living here, or if not there, then certainly here. Inside of that Ark, There was Aaron's rod, which had budded. There was the jar of manna. And most importantly for today, there were the Ten Commandments. The rules that God had given Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, this is my standard. It will never change. Dawn read out the passage. Yesterday, today, the same forever. You cannot negotiate this with God. If you do, you lose. So let's define that as his standard, and agree that that's what he wants us to do. And then, he, then he, alongside of that, he loves people. 
absolutely loves us. So how does holy God, defined in those tablets in there, meet with you and I? He says this way. You put the blood here. Just on this lid. And it's called the mercy seat or the, the atonement cover. And the nation of Israel had a relationship with holy God. That should blow your socks off. I said last week, you should come with crash hats on. I wish you'd all come. You know, maybe if we took him at his word, we might need a crash helmet. But we don't, do we? We really don't. We take him sometimes at his word. When it's, life is easy, when it's going well, it's easy, isn't it? And then actually when we get to a point where we really are on that crest of that wave, do you know the first thing that most people do? Is they drop God. You get, you get blessed, you get evidences in your life. And I've been there. And then suddenly you think, I can do this my way. Who needs God? And then you start going down again and he comes again and everything like that. We're going to look at the ark. The ark has gone. Israel had lost the ark, not because God was defeated, but because they hadn't been doing life his way. And so this wonderful name, Ichabod, the glory had departed the nation. Has God given up on the nation of Israel? Of course not. Does God ever give up on you? No. No. Let's look at the scriptures, Matt, please. This is where we ended last week. She named the boy Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. A really dark chapter in the nation's um, history. The priesthood had failed. The very people who should have been showing the nation the light of God were part of the darkness. Don't be part of this dark world. You be light. And I know, you know, I taught some of you, and actually some of you go through difficult times at work. And I understand that. But you be light. You be light, because it's a dark world out there, and it needs to see the truth. It's moving on. She said, the glorious departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. I love the way he tells us twice, just so we focus on that. And now look, there is a world view. The Philistines. They have a natural world view. They've just defeated Israel. They've just captured the ark. So what do they think? They think, look, after the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. I could show you a picture of this. There's loads of pictures of him. He's got like a mermaid's tail and a funny shaped body. And uh, he's supposed to be, if you're a Philistine or a pagan, he's the one that gives you fish and he's the one that gives you, gives you food. Great. In their thinking, this thing is greater than the living God. Anyone want to have a guess who's the greatest Come on. God. Well done. See, it's better than Sunday school. These are, the questions will get harder. Watch what happens. And imagine what the writer, after the event, imagine his humour as he's writing what happens next. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there's Dagon on his face. Hasn't God got a great sense of humour? He's fallen down 
on the ground before the ark of the Lord. You might think that they would get the picture. That they actually might think, we've got to pick this lump of wood up and stand him upright next to this gold shining box, which we know the history of, by the way. Maybe we're worshipping the wrong one. Do you know, in life, I have come across people who have seen miracles and then just walked away totally unchanged. Totally unchanged. I remember one of the events that I went to, and some of you know the story, my business partner and I went to a full gospel businessmen's meeting in Stockton, and the guy used to be blind. He He still had his registered blind card. He had the guide dog. It was eight years old. They wouldn't take it back. And he's, and he's uh, fantastic. He had, he had hospital port, uh, reports all the way around the room saying, inoperable, no chance of this site ever returning. Hence they get the dog. And then God did a miracle and made him see again. And the most amusing thing I, I, I could remember for that night was him walking a Labrador which was trained to cross the road. And he wanted to run across the road and the dog sat down. And he's ending up dragging the dog across the road and it's not moving. And this poor old Labrador, he has to drag it out. And they still have the same argument now and it was years after the event that the dog thinks it knows best. It wouldn't view reality. It wouldn't view reality. So I go to work the next day and I'm telling all my staff, this was a fantastic night. This guy did this, this guy did this. None of them believe it. And I said, look, I own the place. We'll leave two here. We'll go and I'll, I'll find him. We'll go to Pickering. That's where he lived. I said, you meet the dog. You stroke the dog. You take it for a walk. <coughs> they wouldn't go, you know. They would not go. I said, you're on full pay. Don't worry. They would not go because they didn't want to experience reality. And the world doesn't. It can remain unchanged. But we don't have any excuse. We really don't. If you know God... And if you don't, get into the word and know him. If you know God, we have no excuse. There's no hiding place. God is witnessing to the Philistines. Your God is on the floor. Alright? Maybe you don't get the message the first time. Let's see what happens the next day. They took Dagon, put him back up. The following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold, only his body remained. In that day, and it sounds very barbaric, but one way of knowing how many people you'd killed in battle was to chop their head off or count their hands. So God's saying, that's what you do. Look, I've done that to your God. I've chopped his hands off, chopped his his head off. Do they get the message? That is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any of those who went to Dagon's temple at Ashdod step onto the threshold. Well, that'll sort life out, won't it? Our God fell onto the, the threshold, so we'll step over the threshold, so we don't step onto our God. How daft we can be as people. How really, really strange we can be. Maybe some of them actually thought, do you know what? There's more to this than just broken idols. There's no record of it, but we do know God loves them as well. As if that is not enough, right? And notice this, there's no mention of Israel. God doesn't need Israel to rescue him. He's quite capable of rescuing himself. 
But it might have been nice if they'd tried. You know, if you lose God, go and get him back. How might you get him back? Told you the questions would get harder. Absolutely. Wasn't that hard, was it? But sometimes in life, we lose our God. And he's just there waiting, not to take your head and your hands off, just for you to say, come back. So he ratchets it up. He's met the people where they're at. He's not phased by false gods. This is what they understood. He's demonstrating his power, his authority. But now he wants, he wants them to learn the lesson. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. And he brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumours. If you've got the King James Bible, it's worth reading what he says those tumours are. Does anybody know? Good, okay. You've got the new King James. It might have, what's he got in there? We don't know. Emeroids. Emeralds. Hmm. Ooh. <laughs> we don't know. It's just it's a translation. I think it was bubonic plague actually, because it makes mention of rats and mice in a minute. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, "The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us, because His hand is heavy on us and on Dagon our God." They're still not getting the message. They're still not getting the message. Move it on. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? What shall we do? How do we get over this problem? So the rulers answered, let the ark of God of Israel be moved to Gath. Well, that's a good idea, isn't it? Get it out of the one town that it's messing up. Send it to another town. And so they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after they'd moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into great panic. He afflicted, both the, he afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumours. Like I say, I think it's bubonic plague. The death toll will be rising rapidly. Fancy having that in your midst. Fancy, how do you deal with this? You want to keep the ark because you think you're polytheistic, where you don't mind having other gods, so you're adding him to your collection, but people are dying. All around there is plague. What do you do? What would you do? Send it to another city. Let's have a look. So they sent the ark of the god to Ekron. And as the ark of the god was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they brought the ark of the god of Israel round to us to kill us. And our people, you would cry out. This wasn't done in a vacuum. This was done openly, and they know if that ark comes into their city, people will die. Told you you wanted a crash helmet. So they called together all the rules of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of the God of Israel away, let it go back to its own place, or it will kill us and our people, for death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy now, not just heavy, winding it up all the time. Trying to say a message. A bit like me with Joshua. Trying to say a message. Okay. We will get there. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumours and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. Interesting place. 
When the Ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory for seven months, it's taken them seven months to get to this point. Aren't people slow to learn? Nod at me if you're a people. Good. Some of you are still awake. Watch what they do. The Philistines called the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the Ark of the Lord? Interesting. They're calling in the religious people now. Not the military. They're going to the religious thing. How do we deal with this? Tell us how we should send it back to us, to its place. They answered, if you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it back to him without a gift. God don't need your gifts. But there are, there are ways that we should come to God. But he isn't desperate for your gifts. But in their theology, yeah, by all means send a guilt offering to him. And then you will be healed and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines asked, what guilt offering should we send to him? And they replied, five gold tumours. Numbers are important. There are five rulers, five major cities in Philistine, and five gold rats. Anyone seen any rats lately? (laughs) According to the number of the Philistine rulers, that was an in-joke. Because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Okay. Make models of the tumours and of the rats that are destroying the country and give glory to Israel's God. Fascinating. Look what's just happened. Israel wasn't giving God glory. Israel was doing its own thing. This is during the period of Judges where everyone does what they think is right in their own, in their own eyes. And yet a pagan... People are giving glory to God. There's some insight going on there. And they don't know. They don't know what's going to happen. Perhaps he will. Perhaps he won't. Perhaps he'll remove his hand from us. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Just let's get the ark back. They have more insight than Israel. More insight than the very people God was teaching. Sometimes when you work with non-believers, they can turn around to you, can't they, and say, you can't do that. You shouldn't be doing that. They have insight. That's happened to some in the room. Move it on, Matt, please. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and the Pharaohs did? When Israel's God dealt harshly with them, did they not send the Israelites out so that they could go on their way? The Philistine nation, 400 years after the event, know the history of the ark. They know what happened to Egypt. This is history. Egypt, the most powerful nation, suffered the ten plagues, gave them gifts and forced Israel out of the land. That was God. They know it. Israel forgot it. Come on, we'll move on and we'll get to the bit I wanted to get to. Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows that I've I've carved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. What do you think they're doing there? Nothing? What are they doing? Let's look at it, look. A new cart, that sounds good, doesn't it? Let's give, it, give God a new cart. 
Let's take two cows that are calved. So that's female cows. We got that bit here. Okay. That's important. It comes in later. And they've never been yoked. What does a yoke mean? Harnessed. Yeah, they're attached. They're two cows side by side, attached to one, one cart with a gold box on it. Yeah? They've never done that. So if you were a farmer and you wanted a cow to pull a cart, for a start you'd use a bull. And secondly, you would never use one that's never been trained to do it. This ark could go anywhere. They could panic. And then having two calves, right? What's a mother's instinct going to be? She's going to go back to the babies. Natural order of event. It's going to go back the way to the pen with the calves in. All this is set up so that actually the slightest thing of it going wrong, it's not God. The testing, really. If a miracle happens and the cows go away from where the calves are and they don't bolt and being yoked together for the first time, then it means God is actually there. Sometimes believers do that, don't we? We test God a little bit. Ever done that? I know you have. You may as well cough up. You're in church. Do you know what? You don't need to. You just don't need, you just need to believe this. Honestly. You just need to believe. They haven't got this. And sometimes, I know where some of your minds would go to, Gideon in his fleece. He hasn't got a Bible. You don't need a fleece. You just need to know God. You have the Spirit of God dwelling within you, and he's quite capable of talking to you, as we will see. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart and in a chest beside it. Notice that, in a chest beside it. Not in the ark, in a chest beside it. Put the gold objects you're sending back to him as a guilt offering and send it on its way. All right, there's a gold cart, there's another box, some tumours, some rats. I bet God's feeling really blessed, don't you? But keep watching it. If it goes on it to, it, to its own territory towards Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if he does not, here's the get-out clause. And sometimes when people test God, they put a little get-out clause. Normally it's the other way around for us. We make it easy for God to answer the prayer we want. Lord, if you want me to marry that woman, let me see her tomorrow. And I'll go and knock on her door. Or whatever. Right? They've made it really difficult. They've made it totally contrary to the natural order of events. But God's in control. But if it does not, then we shall know that it was not his hand that struck us, but that it happened to us by chance. It's just a coincidence. Wherever this box goes, people die. Hmm. Yeah. So they did this. They took two such cows and hitched them to the cart and penned up their calves. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart and along with it the chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumour, you get the picture, right? Big event, people looking at it, is this going to work, or is it just chance? Has my luck run out, or will a miracle happen? Then the cows went straight up towards Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. They never even ate grass. They just went all the way down, where they shouldn't have been going. You might think that they get the picture now. Dagon's been chopped up and they've got to pick him up. 
There's a miracle happening before their eyes and still they aren't worshipping the real God. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh and now enter Israel again. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley and when they looked up and saw the ark they rejoiced at his sight. I wonder what's going through their mind. It's harvest time there's this big gold box or gold covered box coming down down the road. Two cows lowing and making a sound. God is returning to the nation. Is that true? Is that true? No, Gilbert. He never left. It was just a box. Think about it. God is everywhere. Isn't he? They just lost sight of that. They just lost sight of that. And sometimes it's so easy. We look at something and say, ah, no, 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 no. God is everywhere. Even in the difficult times, he was still with Israel. They were never not his people. Seven months now since the ark has gone. Do you know what they could have done? They had some options here. They could have gone and got the ark back. They could have gone and got on their knees and prayed and fasted and sought God's direction and said, we've messed up. We want you to come back to us. That's all he was waiting for. But because they don't get the picture... He has to come out himself. It's just a box. It's a showing a greater reality. But they're happy. They're happy a box has come to town. So what do you do? The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart, sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Bad luck for the cows, wouldn't it? <laughs> Do you know what? They think they're doing right, but they're doing totally wrong. If you read the law, if you read the law, only male animals were ever sacrificed. And we think some of this stuff doesn't matter. But it matters to God. All the little details matter to your God. They think they're doing fantastic here. God, you're back in our presence. It just happens to stand, at a, stand alongside a big rock. They've forgotten what's important. And sometimes we do that. We forget what's important to him. We've lost sight of reality. Their intention's good. The Levites, see, these are the guys who should have known. These are the ones that should know how to handle this. The Levites took down the Ark of the Lord, together with the chest containing the gold objects, and placed them on the large rock. Full of good intentions. Your good intentions aren't good enough. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord, and if I stopped it there, great. God has returned to his people doesn't stop there. The five rulers of the Philistines saw all this and then returned that same to Ekron and you would think revival breaks out but it doesn't. These are the gold tumors the Philistines sent as a guilt offering to the Lord. One each for Ashdod, Gaza. That one, Gath and Ekron. 
And the number of gold rats was according to the number of the Philistines. Towns belonged to the five rulers, the fortified towns with their country villages. The writer wants us to get all the picture. Everything. The large rock on which the Levites set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day. And some of you will know that my mind, when I read that, thinks of memorial stones that you have. Do you have memorial stones? Do you know what memorial stones are? Memorial stones are something, first of all in the Bible, where God has said, take a rock, put this rock here, bring your children to this rock and testify about what I did for you. And if we bring that forward into today's life, you and I need memorial stones. We need occasions in our heart where we know beyond a doubt, beyond a doubt, This was God. You've all got them, if you will but recognise them. This is God. He got me out of a mess. He displayed his glory. He displayed the fact that I'm his child. That's my anchor. And when those troughs come, and they come, you go back to that stone. You go back to that stone and you look at it and you say, I don't understand all what's happening, but this much I know, that's a memorial stone. It's personal to you. It's great to testify. But this much I do know. My God is alive. The rest, I might not understand. But I know I worship not a Dagon, not a false image. The living God. A witness. A testimony to that day. Let's move on. It's all gone wrong. Look at this. But. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt with them. What on earth has gone off here? I thought it was a minute ago we were rejoicing. God has come back home. There's a memorial stone saying God's there. And now he's killed 70 of his own people. What have they done, by the way? Do you see what they've done? They've looked into the ark. They forgot their understanding. They forgot what God said. Do you know there's no record of the Philistines looking into the box? Did someone come up with a bright idea? I wonder if the jar of man is in the box. I wonder if the Ten Commandments are still there or Aaron's rod. Perhaps the Philistines have nicked it. Maybe God needed Israel's help all along. They've forgotten. Do you know, can we put the, the picture of the ark up again, please, Matt? Think of the picture now. I want to paint you a picture. The system is this. On one day a year, a a man can go into the ark's presence. He has to take the blood of an animal and put that on there for the sins of the nation and for his own sins. On one day a year that can happen, the Day of Atonement. And Israel's forgotten that. They've taken the lid off, off this box. 
They've looked into the box. And this is the picture that you see in, in the text. You can come to God. You can come to God and you can stand before God, the living God. And you can say, okay God, judge me by your Ten Commandments. Go ahead. You judge me by your written law, by your standard. Or you can do it the other way. You can come to God through the blood of a sacrifice. Isn't it wonderful, the picture that you see? They came to God in their own righteousness. They were Levites. They should have known better. They were rejoicing. They were happy. But none of us can stand before the living God in our own purity, in our own goodness. The law catches all of us. There's not one person in this room on this planet that can stand before the living God. And, you know, sometimes Christians are, are, are accused of being narrow-minded. That actually, well, I don't like the fact that I need an innocent substitute so I can come to the God. You miss the point. The point is this, we can come. It's not what we set our terms. The world does that. They set their terms on, on how to approach God. Oh, I, you know, you see them on the television or you meet them at work or whatever. Well, I don't believe in God. Well, I'd look. That doesn't mean he doesn't exist just because you don't believe in him. Well, what about all this or all that? I don't know. But I know this. And I know this. One day, we get to stand before him. You and I get to stand before God. Now, do you want to stand before him like they did, with the lid off? Or do you want to stand him before him through the blood of Jesus? The, the writer to Hebrews, can we put the passage up in Hebrews? Thank you, Matt. He looked back at this event and others, it's not just a one-off, at, at, at this event, and he writes this. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also for an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up in, it, in the first room with the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. And it's drawn a picture for them. And they know, they're familiar with it. This is the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place. This curtain. There's the ark. There's the curtain. There's the man. Which had the golden altar of incest and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. I won't mention what I was going to say. Go, go ahead, Matt. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. That is the place where you become at one with God. The mercy seat. But we can't discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer room. That's the first room. They do the, what they need to do every day. They're allowed there. But only the high priest, only one person, entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood. Never without blood can you come into God's presence. Which he offered for himself, because he's a sinner. And for the sins of the people are committed in ignorance. Yeah, that's it, okay. There's the picture. 
But then we've got Jesus. You see, one of the things that's not in that most holy place is this. There's no seat. In fact, for that guy to go across that threshold, he must have been petrified. He would have had, we know from the Old Testament, bells around the the, the hem of his, his, his garment, a rope round his leg, because what happens if he gets it wrong? Well, suppose the blood is unacceptable. Suppose the sacrifice was refused. He dies. In that room, he dies. So you can imagine the guys outside with the rope getting ready to pull him out because no one else is going in. There's no record of it ever happening that, where it wasn't accept, accepted. But there's no seat. And yet, where's Jesus? Well, he's seated right under the Father. You see, when Jesus came and he shed his blood, he is the perfect sacrifice, isn't he? There is no need now for a priest. There's no need for any more animals to be sacrificed. The blood is shed. The question is this, and it's always the same question. Do you come to God through the blood of the Lamb? Through him. He is the Lamb of God. Even in Samuel, you can see the picture. For those who don't want to come through the death of Christ, he's taking the lid off the ark. You will one day stand before God in your own righteousness. And you won't make it. You will not make it. I think that's great. Not that you don't make it, don't get me wrong. But isn't it great we can come to him? Do you want to tell your face? There you go. This isn't. This is supposed to be. You know, the gospel is good news. Honestly, it's not frightening. We can come to the living God through Jesus' blood. That's the reality. You know, when I showed Ron Block's testimony there, he asks us to view life God's way. If we don't, you know what? We'll get messed up so badly. Don't. Why bother? Just give in and just say, I'll do it your way, God. Amen. No. I give in.